0: Hi, ho everybody. My name is Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio Eleven on the internet. I'm here for the thirteenth episode of the Calzumi's podcast with my friend Thomas Smale, who runs FEI. It's a brokerage for online businesses, which I used last year to sell Bingo Card Creator. Yeah,
1: hi Patrick. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: So, Thomas, last year you helped me sell Bingo Card Creator, which was the first business that I had been running from about 2006 through 2015, selling bingo cards over the internet to elementary school teachers. Do you guys do a lot of work with SaaS companies?
1: In the last 12 months, just to put it in perspective, we did about 80 deals, and this year we're on track to do around 100 deals. At the moment, around a third of our business is in the SaaS or software space, so it's not all we do, but it's quite a big focus internally.
0: And just out of curiosity, what are the other sort of businesses that you guys see a lot
1: so we also do if we broke it down to third or third third to keep it quite simple uh we do e-commerce businesses so i guess selling on amazon like amazon fba e-commerce through their own store would be about another third and then a third content businesses so whether that's content based sites that are monetized with adsense or amazon affiliates are quite popular especially on the the lower end and then we also have a a mixture of other businesses we do. Generally speaking, if it's an online-based business, we will take a look at it.
0: So one of the things that was interesting to me was kind of comparing and contrasting how the uh, acquisitions work at the scale of the economy and also how that's similar and different to, let's say, more traditional acquisitions for startups or for larger firms. One of the interesting things is that just like in larger firms, uh, SaaS gets kind of a valuation premium relative to the revenue or cash flow that's coming out of the business. Can you explain what that looks like in your experience?
1: So generally speaking, a SaaS business on average, assuming all parts being equal to an equivalent, say e-commerce business or content business will sell for more, in terms of how much more, generally speaking, you would probably be looking at about, premium and the real driver there is the fact that a SaaS business has that recurring income and that baseline so I think from a buyer's perspective worst case scenario even if you can't grow the business or even if it starts to decline you've still got that baseline of subscribers and also with a solid subscriber base you can build momentum quite quickly so we've seen quite a few buyers come in to acquire small SaaS businesses where the owners either moved on to new projects will kind of run out of ideas with it, and they've managed to scale it quite quickly because you've got that baseline that's already there. So that tends to be the appeal from
0: the the buyer perspective and what drives multiples up compared to other business models. Mm -hmm. So we're well aware of this because you do 80 to 100 deals a year and I saw the process through the nitty gritty, but I'm guessing that most of my audience uh, doesn't know exactly what the multiple we're calculating is. So we should probably be pretty explicit that the multiple is a multiple of What's called this SDC, seller discretionary cash flow, that's coming out of the business, which is basically how about you explain that for everybody? Because you probably know it better than me.
1: Yeah, so we use SDE, which is seller discretionary earnings, but it's basically the same thing as seller discretionary cash flow. And you might hear it be described a few other things as well. Effectively, it's the net profit of the business, or some people like to use EBITDA or EBIT or a similar calculation to that, and then adding back. So of it's not taking into account anything the owner has taken out of the business. So for example, the owner's salary, anything else you might take out for tax purposes. So for example, personal health insurance, a car, rent, anything that's not entirely relevant to running the business. And the reason that's done is to standardize the sale of small businesses because one owner on an exactly the same business might pay themselves $50,000 a year and the other owner might pay themselves $200,000 a year. So if you don't use an SDE calculation, the owner who pays themselves less would look like their business is more profitable and worth more. So it kind of levels the playing field and that's generally used for any, any business making less than a million a year in
0: profit or SDE in this case. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so after you've calculated what the business's revenues minus the necessary expenses to generate those revenues are, we multiply by a number, which I guess is set by market conditions mostly, where buyers and sellers are willing to transact. But at the moment, my understanding is in, in SaaS that it's about roughly three years.
1: Yeah, no, that's about right. So we have an internal valuation model that we've built out, which looks at all of our past sales. So at the moment, we've done just about 400 transactions now. So all that data is in there and we'll look at past deals, look at similarities, depending on the growth. If you look at the last 12 months, we see SaaS businesses go up to five times or even six times annual, but that's looking at the last 12 months. So if it's growing, if you look at the last three months, we would have generally extrapolate that out for the next 12 months and -hmm. then apply a a three times multiple to that so it's more like five times the last 12 months or three times extrapolating the last three and that's something we only really do for SaaS businesses just because the growth can be a little bit more predictable and the revenue is a little bit more predictable whereas in a e-commerce store for example you could have had a couple of good months due to a, a sale or running like a promotional group on or something like that but that's not sustainable it doesn't really increase the value as much as a kind of increase
0: in mrr that you see in the SaaS business mm-hmm. e-commerce businesses are also typically very sensitive to seasonality which is uh, uncommon in SaaS businesses says the one guy with the extremely <laughs> extremely seasonal SaaS business that he used to run okay. but yeah When I was in the process of selling Bingo Card Creator with you, which uh, going through the process took a couple months to complete, but before that, there was obviously a longer process with me thinking through, okay, I want to sell this business. What do I start to do to get my ducks in a row? You gave me some good advice with regards to things I could do that would both make the transition a little smoother for both myself and the buyer, and which would tend to increase the valuation of the business. What are some of those things that folks who might own a SaaS business and uh, be thinking of selling it in, say, the next, I don't know, 12 months. Start to do today to kind of make that process easier for themselves.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's another good point that is important to think about these things well in advance of the sale. So you definitely did the right thing coming to us months before you are planning it. And most of the successful clients we see who do sell their business have done that as well. So I'll, I'll stick with relatively generic advice that I guess will be relevant for any business. So the first one... And I don't know this is definitely something you experienced and almost all of our clients do is getting your financials in shape. Mm-hmm. So whether that's just even as basic as making sure you track your financials, it always amazes me how many small business owners run businesses and they have no idea what they've got going in or out each month. And they don't know until they get their tax return from the accountant at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ask people for an income statement for the last 12 months with a monthly breakdown, which a lot of people don't do or their accountant might do for them, but they don't necessarily have it hand. So that's definitely something to start putting together. And in the case of people who own multiple businesses, often they'll all run through one company. So they might have an LLC that owns three assets and they'll have various shared expenses that run through that. So that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. And I generally advise people where they can to start splitting out expenses. So for example, if you've got one server that has three different products hosted on it, then think about separating out the server for the one you want to sell, because that's going to save you a lot of time and kind of headaches when it comes to transfer. And from a buyer perspective, it also reduces the risk. So making sure you've got your financials in shape, but can also allocate costs and revenue to the particular business that you're looking to sell. If you can't do that, it's going to be quite difficult. So quite often we have to make assumptions. Let's say, for argument's sake, you've got an employee who's a virtual assistant and works on works forty hours a week on two of your businesses equally. Then we'll often just take into account the cost of half their time as an assumption. But that's a practical solution, and whether or not buyers will buy that effectively as a a viable way of allocating the cost is is a different matter. So the more you can separate it, the better. With SaaS businesses, particularly, it's important to get. You're like code base in order, make sure it's properly documented. And the same with systems. What you tend to find, especially on the lower end South businesses, which tend to be single founder or partnerships, they're quite often with a technical founder who's built or written the majority of the code themselves. So it might be very familiar to them, but from a third party perspective, that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. So in situations like that, there's no problem with building your own product or anything like that and i'd always encourage people to do that but i would definitely recommend bringing in a a third party programmer or coder or or whatever just to get familiar with the code so when you hand the business over there's at least someone who's been in there before and maybe even just get a friend or or someone you trust to go through the code and make sure that they understand it so for someone else who's going to come in and take it over there's no issues and if there are issues which we've seen come up before on a few deals it's never too late to start working on the documentation, but the the, the earlier you do it in the process, the less headaches you're going to have later on. Yeah, um, one of the so things that was be, yeah sorry, go ahead.
0: yeah one of the things that was motivating me selling uh, bingo card creator and my other business appointment reminder was that I'm you know fully committed on Starfighter going forward. And one of the things I did with the money I got from Bigo Card Creator was immediately plowed it into getting a firm to look at the Starfighter code base, start to get familiar with it, and write a comprehensive test suite. So that's you know, when I finally get around to selling that process will go smoothly in terms of both due diligence and during the handover, I'll have a consultancy that I can point to and say okay if you need you know ongoing development or uh, maintenance done in this product this consultancy is already very familiar with this code base and can help you out with that you know there's no reliance on me as the bus factor one driving the business
1: yeah that's definitely a sensible plan another thing that comes up which i guess isn't necessarily planning as such but something we we see especially on lower end businesses doesn't happen so much on like the high six figure and seven figure businesses we do but on relatively small businesses it's quite common for owners to decide they're going to settle in three to six months and effectively just give up running the business and then it kind of falls into a state of disrepair and decline so it's important when you do you start thinking about sale do you, do you continue and also throughout the, the sales process as well to continue running the business as if you were gonna run it forever It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be working 70 hours a week writing new features and doing new marketing campaigns but making no one wants to buy a business on, on a decline and businesses that are declining are going to attract a significantly lower multiple than a either stable or growing business so it's very important to Make sure that you don't drop the ball there. And even if you've mentally checked out, just keep that going because buyers really do like punish you for any drop.
0: One of the interesting things for me was that there seems to be a sweet spot between you don't want to be too inactive, don't want the business to fall into decline and disrepair. You want to continue doing mm. maintenance, customer support, etc. But at the same time, you also kind of don't want to rock the boat immediately before an acquisition. I think one of the things that you explained to me was that if you do particular moves which might look like you are attempting to juice the revenue numbers, folks are perhaps a little less trusting of that. So for example, running promotions or drives to get new annual subscriptions directly before the, you know, in the month to two months leading up to an acquisition is something that is highly looked down upon even if that would be normal if you were running the business for forever.
1: Yeah, no, that that's true. I guess the only exception to that is if it's a, a regular annual promotion or something like that you run. But quite often people think, oh, I need to make as much money as possible. So like you say, they start running lifetime discounted plans or annual plans at half price or something along those lines, which actually doesn't help a sale at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see. So... We talked a little bit about the range of acquisitions. You said that the higher end for your firm is the upper six figures, low seven figures. What's the practical minimum for size of the business that you guys would represent?
1: In recent months, we started expanding out our team. We've just starting a lease on a new office in Boston. So our team's growing up quite quickly. We've started to increase our upper end so at the moment we've we've got a couple of deals in the, the mid seven figure range we're working on oh, wow. and that will probably start going towards the low eight figure range which is not something we've we've focused on much before but we've got the depth in the team and we've also got the i guess the a very solid reputation in the SaaS and online business brokerage space that means that we're being seen as a, a pretty solid option at that level yeah so just minor correction there o- on the lower end Generally, the lowest will sell is around $20,000, but it's quite rare for us to have anything below fifty. But we do have a dedicated team. Quite often, people come in with small businesses and they're a bit worried that oh, if they list a $30,000 business of us, they're not going to get the same level of service that they might get for, say, a million-dollar business. But actually, what we've done internally is separate out teams. So we have a, a small-cap team, their only job is to do twenty thousand to hundred thousand dollar deals. Mm-hmm. A mid cap team that does hundred to five hundred, and then a large cap team that at the moment does anything from five hundred up to about six million. So it does mean that you very much get pretty much the same service for a fifty thousand deal that you do for a, a five hundred thousand dollar deal.
0: Mm-hmm. It was interesting in seeing Bingo Card Creator. So I'm NDA'd on the exact number, but let's say, uh, sadly, it was not a seven figure deal. Even towards the lower end of that range, you guys have basically systems and processes in place that allow you to execute at a fairly high level of sophistication with regards to deals that, let's say, let me put it this way. There was someone who used to work at Goldman and Sachs who handled the due diligence for Bingo Card Creator, I think. It was either Goldman and Sachs or some other finance firm that is very similar to them. And I was very, very surprised to have them going out line by line through my revenue books, I think the final report listed one chargeback that I'd missed in July that they had managed to, you know, identify a $24.95 discrepancy in the revenue books. So hats off for the level of attention to detail on that process.
1: Yeah, so we, we apply pretty much the same process to smaller deals. We do larger deals. I guess the only difference with larger deals are they're generally just more complex. So the service is still pretty much exactly the same but things like due diligence contract reviews negotiation deal structuring the initial preparation all takes just takes longer
0: so why don't we sketch out for a little bit what the process looks like both in general and if it's helpful for me to say what the process looked like for bingo card creator i guess the first step is fairly similar to what i went through typically someone reaches out to you and says hey i have a website and Let's talk about it a little bit because my plans might involve selling it. So what does that initial reach out look like? How do you qualify someone as you know, saying, okay, we can represent this business versus maybe this doesn't hit our sweet spot, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So we have, I guess, two distinct types of inquiries. One would be someone who wants to sell now and they're already like, familiar with the process and they want to get started. And then the second group, which is probably more common, much like yourself, was, hey, I'm thinking about selling what do I need to do? So the the main thing from our side, like the first thing we're going to do is make sure that it's a, a good fit for us. We don't want to waste the client's time on a business. It's not going to be something we're going to take on. So whether that's a business that's too small or not in an industry that we have buyers in or something like that. So the first is always qualifying to make sure it reaches our criteria. Secondly, it's establishing what the client's actually trying to achieve. Some people want to sell now and they they just want to get market value for the business. Other people have a particular timeline in mind. They might say, hey, Thomas, I've got this new venture starting in six months. I want to get it sold then. Other people say, hey, my business is doing really well. I want to get a million dollars for it. What do I need to get there? So we'll always have an initial conversation with them, whether that's via email, phone, or occasionally you might meet people at conferences and events and just get an an idea of exactly what the client's trying to achieve once we've got an understanding of what they're trying to do we can then put a plan in place for an exit so generally what we'll do is start with a evaluation if that information's available and then it helps seller make a balanced decision about what they want to do you quite often find that sellers are surprised by the valuation either in a it's higher than they thought or lower than they thought and quite often if it's more than they expected they'll quite often just want to get started with the process now and if it's lower they might want to be some things they they work on so the initial chat is very much like a no pressure let's get an understanding of where your business is at the moment and what it might be worth
0: mm-hmm. i remember when we had the initial consultation i came to you, and what i thought the agenda for the chat was was going to be working 100 on selling appointment reminder and then maybe selling bingo card creator if the uh we had the opportunity to do so. And just for context, for anyone who doesn't know this point, reminder is a call it five times larger business than Bingo Card Creator is. And I remembered being very impressed with you because you listened to my situation and said, counter proposal, we should sell Bingo Card Creator first because it would be an easier transaction. It would give me a, you know, reasons to trust that you guys did a good job and would let me learn about the process so that in the, you know, more important transaction, I'd have a better basis of skill for proceeding with it get a better outcome and feel less risk involved with the process. And I was particularly impressed by this because, you know, I've been a consultant for several years and it's always difficult to turn down the larger paycheck from two consulting gigs when what the client really needs is the one that, you know, comes attached to the smaller paycheck. So hats off for that.
1: Yeah, it's one of the, I think it's one of those things that we've always focused on over the year. It's always doing best by the client even if that's not necessarily the best thing for us financially at the time and the nature of the advisory world I think business brokers or MA advisors or what you want to call them that quite often get quite a bad reputation so we've always been quite conscious that we need to be kind of a, a level above the average and what people perceive and being a very small industry everyone knows everyone it's important that for us to maintain word-of-mouth business, which is where we get quite a lot of our clients from, that we've very much done the right thing. You might make more money in the short term giving the wrong advice, but in the long term, it doesn't really build a a sustainable business or a a good reputation.
0: Yep. Speaking of reputation, one of the reasons that it took me so long to sell my business was because, let's say I've been around the internet a few times and uh, business brokers don't have a wonderful reputation typically. And the reason I took a chance on you guys was... Rob Walling and Mike Tabor, two of my friends who run MicroConf, gave me a very glowing testimonial personally. And then that was basically enough for me to take a chance on the conversation with you. And after the conversation with you, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to do a deal with you. And then after watching when the first deal went through, it's a pretty much a no-brainer that you'll get the business for my second deal. And I think I've also referred something like seven people to you already. Working on number eight, we'll see.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. We do get a lot of business from word of mouth and we certainly appreciate all of the people you've you sent our way. But that's very much the way we've grown the business. We don't invest a huge amount into paid advertising or anything like that. We're very much a, a word of mouth and referral-driven business. And we find one of the advantages of, of that for us as well is that we get far higher quality businesses that way than you might do somewhere else. And it also means you can as you know like being a consultant if you've got the the reputation and the referral you can be brutally honest with people and give them the the right advice that they might not necessarily want to hear and actually go through that process without issues whereas if they're cold or they've come in off a AdWords ad or a Facebook ad or something like that then it's a
0: slightly different
1: approach to be effective.
0: Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that the industry gets sort of a bad rap is often a bit of, let's see, baiting and switching with regards to oh, you know, give someone a very high, maybe not a formal valuation, but give them the expectation on the seller side that they'll get a very high number and then get them invested in the process and, you know, say, well, actually, after reviewing it, it seems that we can only get you, you know, a number closer to where the market actually is. But that's neither here nor there. Let's see. So I the reputation based business, I've Sent several friends to work with you guys in the last year. That's worked out very well for everybody. So let's talk about some of the some of the things that were kind of surprising to me when I was going through the process. And you know, feel free to throw in stuff for that might be surprising to uh, to other folks who are going through either on the buyer side or the seller side. Probably the biggest curveball to me was that I ended up selling my SaaS business to a to a pair of teachers, which is not quite a uncommon thing for you know someone selling a business focused on teachers i guess but it turns out that most of the folks who buy SaaS businesses through you are not technical
1: it kind of depends i'd say this is where there's quite one of the reasons we have different teams is you do get a slightly different buyer profile depending on the size Mm -hmm. so for businesses below a hundred thousand or in the SaaS space maybe even below two hundred thousand you quite often get non-technical buyers and that's where it comes in handy having like the coding good order and having a freelancer on the, the higher end when you're dealing with SaaS businesses so we recently completed a, a 1.1 $1. $1 million dollar SaaS business sale and that had two technical co-founders who left the business as part of the sale so the buyers there they weren't necessarily technical themselves but they had access to a team that were and on million dollar deals you, you would expect buyers to have that sort of infrastructure in place but on a A smaller deal, like a $100,000, you don't necessarily have that depth you can reach out to. So generally, uh, people will buy SaaS businesses or any online business without a technical background. If they know there's a way they can get help, whether it's a reliable freelancer or occasionally the owner will agree a consulting agreement where they're available, say, five hours a month for three months as part of the deal to, to hang around. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's not completely uncommon to see non-technical, particularly outside of the SaaS space. The SaaS space, I'd say it's probably 50-50 technical versus non-technical, but with access to help or freelancers or whatever that might be.
0: Mm-hmm. I was talking with the uh, person who acquired my business, or rather one of the two people who acquired my business, and she said that she and her husband had been looking at doing an offline business, like buying a Subway franchise for a while. And then a friend of theirs who ran an FBA business, FBA is fulfilled by Amazon. For those of you who aren't familiar with an acronym, it means that they stock some sort of product on Amazon and then people buy it through the Amazon website and Amazon takes care of shipping the product to them. But anyhow, my acquirer's friend ran an FBA business and told them that they should run an online business rather than offline business because of lower capital requirements and the better lifestyle associated with it. You don't actually have to cut any sandwiches to run an online business. And that was a fairly persuasive argument to them. Other things that were surprising for me during the process, we talked a little bit about getting things ready in terms of getting one's books in order. One of the things that probably took more time than anything else for me, since I was in the situation of running uh, several businesses with largely shared infrastructure, was breaking up different SaaS accounts and hosting accounts, et cetera. For example, i had been saving $5 a month on MailChimp by having four businesses each having their list run in MailChimp. And then in you know a fairly stressful period while getting the deal put together and uh, getting all my ducks in a row, I had to migrate three businesses, mailing lists off of MailChimp, which is a rather involved process and involved doing code changes to all three of those businesses to you know, re-architect their mail sign-up workflows. So that was on fun. I recommend not attempting to, solve and to save the $5 on MailChimp if you're in that situation. Is there anything that you find that... Uh, maybe tech folks specifically or sellers generally might not have as great a handle on as you would like
1: i'd say like just going back to your your previous point about mailchimp i think this is one of the i guess one of the reasons we're so successful is because we have a very rigid process and that does mean that even if it's a a relatively small deal that we still like to get the business in a in a good position to sell so we do very much try and apply the same advice and like systems processes all the way from smaller deals all the way up to to much larger deals. I think your case was reasonably unique where you had multiple businesses all sharing the same accounts. I'd say the majority of clients we deal with only have, if they have multiple businesses, they generally are a lot more simple. So they might have 10 Amazon affiliate websites, for example, but they tend to be quite simple to split out and don't really need a huge amount of work. It's quite rare to find people with multiple successful and profitable SaaS businesses. So in your situation, it definitely came up as a, I guess, a consideration, but for the average person, I, I don't think it's that prevalent. In terms of other things that, that come up, the main thing is this shared financing. So things like MailChimp, if you really needed to, you could just run all the way through the process and then they actually make the process of migrating the the mailing list to a, a buyer or your own, owner relatively simple at time of sale servers are quite a common one quite often you find like people have three or four products all sharing the same server Mm -hmm. so that's definitely something to think about you don't necessarily need to split it out before the sale it does make things easier when it comes to the transfer and ultimately it's going to have to be split out at some stage see why they do it now when i guess there's no pressure on and there's no like money on the table for the deal rather than mid-deal when it comes up as a problem when you've got lots of other different things going on as part of due diligence and contract negotiations and, and things like that. So yeah, service would definitely be one of them. I think the main one is really just keeping on top of your code and making sure it's in a good position to hand over to someone else and have someone else go through that code and look at it. You don't necessarily need to invest a huge amount, even if it's just a freelancer going through or just a friend going through the code to make sure they understand it. That's definitely beneficial, especially if you're dealing with a a non-technical buyer. And really what we like to do is when we're advising sellers, make sure we're giving them the advice to make sure their business appeals to the widest range of buyers as possible. There's little merit in positioning a business. so It's only going to be of interest to a very specific buyer. Um, We get a lot of people who come in and say, oh, I've got a Particular strategic acquirer, but they're going to be the only one that wants the business. In that case, occasionally it will work, and you'll have that big exit that you often read about on the the new sites out there. But to maintain our ninety five percent success rate, it's very much giving advice that means that business is going to be appealing to lots of people. So yeah, they would be the the main things I would focus on. But I mean, I would say as a caveat, your case is relatively unique with the way you had it set up. And most people just have one or maybe two main products.
0: Okay. Makes sense. So after you've done the initial consultation with someone and figured out a plan forward, I guess the next step was a bit of data gathering where you give the the seller a fairly comprehensive questionnaire. I think I remember something like a hundred questions regarding The history of the business, the finance of the business, every metrics-driven question under the sun, where traffic sources come from, what this typical sales process looks like for the product, for businesses that have a more complex product offering, what that product offering looks like, their, their conversion funnel, their upsells, yada, yada, yada. And you then take that input and take people's numbers and Google Analytics and turn that into a prospectus. Yeah,
1: that's right. So the the process hasn't changed a huge amount in the last year. We have built a more sophisticated valuation model now. So we used to be very accurate, but we're now even more accurate and more scalable with valuations because it's now very much a data driven with a little bit of experience in there. Whereas in the past, it was a valuation based on experience, but slightly less data-driven. The questionnaire is quite similar. We have developed it. Depending on the size of the business, it'll be between, and the complexity, between say 80 and 120 questions. Quite often, see so for example, a small Amazon affiliate site might only have 60 questions, whereas a $1.1 million SaaS business that we sold recently had more like 110 questions. So once we've done that, we'll do some back and forth. Depending on the the answers people have given i think in your case you were very comprehensive with your answers we didn't have a huge number of follow-ups but in some cases we'll do quite a few rounds of follow-ups to make sure that the questions are answered properly and there's no like issues in there and also to make sure we understand the business Mm -hmm. um so from there we then put together a, a prospectus which is based on the questionnaire the financials like i said earlier the last 12 months broken down by month that we were like Neatly format Google Analytics. In the case of SaaS businesses, we'll quite often go through bare metrics, whatever other SaaS metrics tool you have to to get the data out. Because in SaaS businesses, particularly, buyers are always interested in your metrics like churn, MRR, and all of those. So that's definitely important with technical businesses like that. Once we've got a prospectus together, the length of it will really depend on the size of the business and the complexity. Usually, it's between 20 and 30 pages. We try not to go much longer than that. We'll then go back and forth with the seller to make sure they're happy with it and everything's factually accurate. And then once that's prepared, we move on to to listing. And at that stage, we go through quite distinct... This is something we've developed in recent months. We now go through quite a distinct three-stage marketing process. The first step of the process is going out to buyers that we have in a very segmented list. So we've spent years and we continue to spend time and resource on developing out an internal CRM, which is something like a cross between Salesforce and Basecamp for what we do. So Salesforce doesn't quite work for us and a Basecamp or teamwork or something like that doesn't quite work for us either. So we built something in the middle, which means that we track a lot of different data on buyers and sellers, what businesses look like, what buyers are looking for. So our first round of marketing is to a, a segmented list. So it might be buyers who said they want to buy a SaaS business below $250,000. dollars that would be our first port of call. And quite often that's where we get the most success because those people, you obviously sending them something that they've very specifically requested. We then go out to our, our wider list which is well over 10,000 people at the moment. So that's a slightly more general interest list. We do get that generates, tends to generate between 100 and 200 qualified inquiries of of buyers that then come in. And then we also promote the business on some third-party platforms, like for example, BizBuySell, which you'll often see, Brokers using but it is quite rare much like with sellers it's very rare for a seller to come in and want to list with us immediately it's also the same with buyers it's very rare for a buyer to inquire from an ad and buy a business immediately they're more likely to end up buying something in 12 months so we, we work through that process hopefully get an offer or multiple offers on the the table and then work to negotiate the offer that the seller wants to accept And that's why we spend quite a lot of time up front, just to kind of understand the needs and wants. Quite often people want a kind of a relatively quick, no-hassle deal, even if that means accepting slightly less money. Other people would rather wait a little bit longer and push for the absolute best offer, and they don't mind offering a bit more in terms of time. So that's really a, a seller preference, thing. we don't push people either way. That's really something that they need to decide. All we can do is give a balanced opinion on, what the best offer is and why. Once we've gone through that, offers get accepted in the form of a letter of intent or LOI. It's a non-legally binding offer, effectively. And that will outline the approximate terms of the deal, although they can often change beyond that. The only thing we try and avoid changing is the actual purchase price. Once that's signed, it then goes into a due diligence period, which can take varying lengths of time depending on the complexity of the business and also the buyers. We have some buyers who might be quite comfortable with a, a business and go through the process quite quickly. So we did a eight hundred thousand dollar deal that closed out a couple of weeks ago, and that due diligence period took less than a week. But we've also done two hundred thousand dollar SaaS businesses take three weeks. So that really depends. And then from there, we go into contract negotiation, which is where we will work with the seller and the buyer to prepare a asset purchase agreement. Get all the important terms in there, which have often been outlined in the LOI. And we always try and make sure that any deal-breaking or like really big terms are agreed up front. Once that's negotiated, sometimes that will involve Lawyers, especially on larger, and more complex deals, sellers and buyers want to get their legal counsel involved, often on smaller deals. It's not necessary. And then from there, we use a third party escrow service who will ensure that the funds are securely transacted between all the parties and the business is transferred. So there's no chance of you sending your business to someone. And then not wiring you the cash or then wiring you the cash and then beginning the business. Mm-hmm. So that's something we've used pretty much since day one of the company and it's worked very well for us. So that's a overview of the current process.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And it worked reasonably smoothly in my case. Uh, you mind if I dig into some bits of this just for people's interest?
1: Sure, no, absolutely. I rushed through the whole lot, so. Okay.
0: No yeah, no worries. So one of the things that you guys did, which I did not appreciate the value of it at the time, was that after we had identified the first prospective buyer for the business, and David, who was the broker working on it for me, also continued developing other leads for people wanting to buy the business, which I was a little confused by because I thought, well, it's only going to get sold once, right? It turned out that against everybody's expectations, the first identified buyer pulled out basically at the closing for the business. David was able to slot in an alternate buyer within, I think the deal fell apart Saturday morning, Japan time, very early in the morning. And I thought I was going to have a very distraught weekend. And then uh, by Monday, the deal was on with a new buyer. And then we closed out, you know, I think the wire got cut that Friday or something. It It was kind of a whirlwind. Yeah, you guys were really in my corner on that one.
1: Yeah, that's one of those things, I guess, slightly unfortunate in that situation. It it really doesn't happen that often, but over the years, occasionally, obviously, we're only dealing with human beings in a, in a process, so quite often, things can change throughout the process, or, or people get cold feet, whether that's buyer or seller, so we've got the experience now, and I think that's one of the advantages of working with a, a broker who's done so many deals, is we've been there, done that, and we've seen it all before. So a lot of our job is not necessarily dealing with the easy stuff, which I guess lots of people can deal with. It's knowing how to react when issues do come up. And invariably, selling a business, various individuals involved, things do come up. Lots of different potential problems can come up. And that's really where the experience comes in. So in that case, we were able to resolve the issue
0: pretty quickly. Yep. These are Bingo Car Creator is a, was a rather small transaction for you guys, but that's a business that has more than a few moving parts, particularly once you throw you know, multiple companies into the mix. And then for the larger purchases you're handling, that's already much higher than the typical transaction size for, say, a house. And my father being in commercial real estate all his life, believe me, I can tell you, uh, houses can throw lots of issues into the, uh, into the play late in the day. So let's talk a little bit about the contract negotiation. I ended up using just your standard terms with a few modifications that were requested by the buyer. Some of the kind of standard modifications that you might want on top of the terms are things like, for example, a non-compete where the seller promises the buyer that they won't either retain another business in the same niche or immediately turn around and attempt to create a business in the same niche, which would tend to disadvantage the buyer since the seller has the pre-existing relationships and the buyer does not. An interesting thing. So my business was largely built on um, search engine optimization. And search engine optimization is heavily sensitive to the link profiles of a website. So it's written into the contractual agreement for selling the business that I'm required to maintain certain links that the rest of my quote unquote business empire uh, has that point to the business that I sold, which is interesting. I was totally willing to do it. But uh, uh, interesting to me that everyone involved in the process was sophisticated enough to ask for that. Just out of curiosity's sake, what's the weirdest term that you've ever seen placed in, um, in an agreement we don't, like this? We,
1: we've had the majority of deals we do follow a reasonably standard clause. And we, we do like sorry, standard clauses. And we do try and keep deals quite standardized. We haven't done a huge number of deals where the terms have got kind of like really out there and quite different. And it, it really depends on the size of the deal as well. So we did a deal a couple of years ago where there was... And much like you were saying a minute ago, a lot of these things are just things that we would have spotted up front. So for example, we knew up front you had links from your other website. So that's something we're going to make sure is in the contract rather than becoming an issue once the deal is closed and the site starts losing rankings because the, the links have been removed. We've had deals in the past where there have been issues transferring the business. So for example, we did one about a year ago where the owner was in the UK and the buyer was in the US. And they ran all of their subscription payments through PayPal (laughs) and PayPal, as it was a UK entity on the PayPal account, could not be transferred to a US entity. So the clause we had in the contract there was as part of the deal, the seller had to keep the PayPal account in good standing for 12 months while they transitioned out firstly transitioned into their own payment processor for any new subscribers and over the course of 12 months the majority of people subscribing churned off in that period so quite often most of the terms we look to putting contracts especially when they're like slightly different from the norm like what i would call a, a practical term that they're generally not things that are like there to screw over the buyer or screw over the seller mm-hmm. we very much like to have a A fair and equitable agreement all round. So, in your case, keeping links in place, it's no problem for you to do that. And from a buyer perspective, it means that they don't have the risk of losing the rankings. And then in the other deal we did, it was an example of where the buyer wanted the business, the seller wanted to sell the business. And the most practical solution was to have an agreement where that would stay in good standing so we've had various agreements like that Mm -hmm. and they very much rely and this I guess again helps working through a broker where just the nature of working through like a trusted advisor means there is more trust in the process that often we can agree or negotiate terms that in a private transaction might have derailed it whether because there was emotion involved in the process or just a lack of experience dealing with roadblocks that For a first or even second time selling a business might be completely new to you Mm -hmm. but for us across 400 deals and various people in the team have experience in mergers and acquisitions doing much larger deals than we do at f international at the moment so we've we've seen a lot over the years
0: i like your emphasis on just two willing parties willing professionals attempting to get into transaction together because that was definitely the the vibe between Beth and myself when we were doing this transaction. One of the things that goes into that is there's typically for many businesses, there's a handover period where the two sides have agreed to have the seller participate in the business for a period of time while the buyer gets the ropes of the business. And that was very important both for Beth that she bought a fairly significant asset and also for myself because I wanted the business to be in good hands and for the customers of the business to have a good experience as Beth and her team were getting spun up on it so that they knew how to continue supporting the business, continue growing the business and the business's reputation and ability to service customers wouldn't be negatively impacted by the handover.
1: Yeah, the handover period is always important and it's something that we insist on. So we won't even take on a deal if the seller's plan is to sell the business and leave on day one and never be contactable again. Generally, again, depending on the size, complexity of the deal, the buyer and the terms, we generally look for a transition period that's just a month. Mm-hmm. I think in much larger deals, and quite often I hear of private deals that have been done that sound great on the outside, but when you actually look at the terms, they're really not great at all because it involves like two hours of sorry, two years of consulting or something along those lines. So generally we look for a 30-day transition. And ultimately, like you say, it should really be a transaction between two willing parties. The contract here is to buy a business that you want to take over. You shouldn't really be entering into the transaction if you don't trust the other party. And while you obviously need the contract to protect both parties if there are any issues it should very much be like fundamentally built on trusting and, and goodwill and ultimately two parties you actually want to to deal with each other. So that's almost as important as the actual deal terms. So quite often people just assume that Getting the, the highest bid is the most important part of the the process. And we quite often asked get asked why we don't run a an auction format or a bidding format. And it's exactly that, that your, say, million dollar offer might actually be better than the $1.2 million offer that has slightly worse terms attached to it and a buyer that you don't necessarily think is going to be a, a good fit. And particularly in the case of your business and quite a lot of other clients we deal with who are relatively high profile it's important for them to see effectively their their business and their legacy to continue to run properly so that transition period and a a fair contract negotiation is very important all around
0: Mm -hmm. i was um overjoyed that you found Beth and her husband, who were both, they're both school teachers in an American public school system to run the business. I'd been offered a few times privately for acquisitions of bingo card creator over the years. And largely they were by, for example, affiliates who were attempting to uh, separate UK retirees from their pension checks with uh, gambling affiliate sites, yada, yada. And that was not what I wanted to happen in this business that I'd run for five years as kind of a labor of love and a hobby. Um, I didn't want it to be to be turned into you know just another scummy site on the internet and i'm very happy that it got used by someone as a stepping stone in their you know online business career and that it will continue to creating value for teachers across the united states and the rest of the world and teaching kids how to learn to read so yay Um, yeah
1: absolutely it's great to hear and it's always good to hear those like success stories down the line that there's nothing better from a broker perspective to hear that you've got two very happy clients 12 months down the line because anyone, anyone can get a deal over the line at the time, but making sure that everyone's doing well 12 months on this is really great to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of my other desiderata was I knew I was going to be very, very busy with my new business this last year. So Bingo Card Creator had been in kind of a period of benign neglect for two years prior to the sale where I was continuing to do routine customer support and the servers stayed up and running, but I wasn't really uh, driving the ball forward. I'm happy to report that the after the transition period went over without a hitch, I've been able to mentally separate myself from the business. So it's presuming, because Beth hasn't emailed me in a long time, that the business is continuing to go pretty well for her. But part of me always has the uh, I have the occasional itch to check in and see how things are going. And part of me is like, no, wait, that chapter's over. Time for a new chapter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think, especially with sellers of where they own a portfolio or they're kind of quite active online... Like yourself, it is quite important, and a lot of the reason people decide to sell in the first place is because they really want to focus on one thing. So, being able to let go, it seems very difficult upfront, and many people don't even think they're able to do it. But ultimately, if you find the right buyer, you're not losing sleep at night that that the business you spent so many years working hard on and ultimately built a really great reputation off the back of has been kind of run into the ground in a a matter of months. So that's another reason why it's quite important. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that leaves us at a pretty good point for wrapping up the episode. Two little notes before we go. Number one, I still own appointment reminder of business, but if you've been following in the rest of this episode, you probably have a pretty good idea of what my midterm plans are for it. So if you, you know, if a slightly used SaaS business with slowly growing revenues is something you'd be interested in, talk to this guy. Thomas, how can people find you on the internet?
1: Yeah, so the, the best thing to do is visit our website, which is www.feinternational.com. You can always contact via our contact form. If you go on our blog, we have content for quite broken down into buyers and sellers so if you're looking to potentially sell a business and you don't necessarily want to get on the phone with me or someone in the team we have a exit planning course which is a free email drip course which i believe actually you recommended we launched about a year ago so that's mm-hmm. now out and we also similarly for buyers we have a an ebook all about introducing you to the process and then obviously if you're actually looking to sell now you go straight to our seller site page and inquire we'll give you a free valuation and if you're looking to buy have a look at our buyer website page and if there's anything on there get in touch and someone
0: from the team will will reach out particularly for those of you who are looking to sell you know a plus plus would do business again we'll do business again with thomas and the team but regardless of whether you end up by using them to represent you or not i would definitely solicit their opinions with regards to what the next steps are for your business given your life slash career plans. If nothing else, get their checklist on doing due diligence, etc. because it will make your life much, much easier as you get closer to the process. Because these are very complex things, even at the uh, lower end of the scale. I think when I sat down and made a Trello board of all the tasks that I would need to do prior to selling the business, I got to 60 odd items. And your guys' help was pretty instrumental in putting that together. So. Thanks very much for taking the time with me today, Thomas. And thanks very much for all of you guys for tuning in to the podcast. Wow, two episodes in two months. Breakneck speed for us. Hopefully we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another great guest.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot.